0: Over 20 years ago, in a former life, as I was at Princeton Theological Seminary the director of admission, I first became acquainted with Jonathan Walton before he was the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Walton. And we had an opportunity to work together at Princeton Seminary for a number of years, including playing some basketball and a few other things. And uh, he has gone on to just do amazing things. Uh, He taught here at UC Riverside for a period of time and then was called to succeed Peter Gomes at Harvard University at the chapel there uh, and has just recently been appointed the dean of the Divinity School at Wake Forest University. So he and his family, his wife, Cicely, And their children have moved from Boston down to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, where he has begun his duties there. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Walton and uh, to welcome him back to Southern California. Let's give him a warm San Marino Church welcome. Jonathan.
1: To God be the glory for the wonderful things that God has done, for that that we anticipate God to do in this preaching hour, and even for that that God is doing right now. What a mighty God we serve. My friends, before I read the scripture, I want to note last week I just want to name this. The last week, the Pew Research Center published a report. I don't know if you had a chance to see this, Jeff, it was entitled The Digital Pulpit. Researchers from Pew analyzed over 50,000 online sermons from Catholic congregations and Protestant denominations. And according to the report, there were striking differences. In the typical length of sermons when analyzing Catholic mainline quote unquote white Protestants, charismatic evangelicals, and historically black denominations. A Catholic homily averaged 14 minutes. Presbyterian, Episcopal, and Methodist churches, like this one, the average was about 25 minutes. White charismatic evangelical churches, their sermons last about 39 minutes. And African-American Protestant preachers typically preached roughly an hour. (laughs) So I can imagine what you're thinking right now. Let me just go ahead and say it's okay. (laughs) Fortunately, I came up under a pastor that taught me for a sermon to be memorable, it doesn't have to be everlasting. (laughs) (laughs) But I do want to just take personal privilege and I just want to say this. I just want to extend my deep appreciation to all of you In general, and to your pastor, Reverend Jeff O'Grady, in particular. As he said, I've known him for over two decades when he was admissions director and then dean of student life at Princeton Theological Seminary, and I was just a kid from Atlanta begging for admission to Princeton Theological Seminary. And over the years, both he and Lynn and as our relationship has taken different forms, different shapes, uh, the power dynamic has shifted and changed and now I have the pleasure of serving with him and under him as he chairs the board of Princeton Theological Seminary and I have the honor of being a board member. I can say with so much sincerity that Jeff O'Grady has not changed in 20 years insofar as He is the exact same person, both Jeff and you, Lynn, the exact same people I met in 1998. Full of respect, thoughtful individual, that no matter the encounter, he's always going to serve up a healthy helping of grace, generosity, and kindness. And I just wanted to say that publicly. Thank you, Reverend O'Grady. Thank you. I also feel the same about Heather and Paul Hager. Thank you. Their commitment to the public good through their support of higher education and the arts and communities of faith everywhere inspires me. And just thank you both for being you. And to this entire ministry staff, to this entire ministry staff, and this incredible choir. Good Lord, those victorious, triumphant voices. I am so glad that I'm spending Advent here with you. I consider it a joy. Please, if you would, stand as we read the word of the Lord together. Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, the son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son and named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may take your seat. Unexpected and unlikely. Unexpected and unlikely. My friends, this morning's lesson is a staple of the Advent Christmas season. God dispatches an angel to deliver miraculous news. Mary is with child. The Messiah the anointed one, the coming redeemer that prophets predicted for many generations is growing inside of her womb. Mary is going to deliver the child that will deliver all of us. Eight centuries before, it was the Hebrew prophet Isaiah who declared, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. My friends, this is a miracle. Now by the second century the developing Christian church began to emphasize another remarkable feature of this story. And that's the dimension of the virgin birth. For according to both the books of Matthew and Luke, Mary and her fiance Joseph, they never did what I often tell my teenage twins. That only adult, mature, gainfully employed people in a committed relationship ought to do once their frontal lobes have fully connected and their own name is on a lease or a mortgage. They never rounded third base. The Holy Spirit conceived this baby. Jesus then. Theologically since the second century was duly constituted both human and divine. God is his father and Mary his mother. This is indeed a miracle. An unexpected and unlikely miracle. But my friends, I want to take I want to take about the 14 mainline Protestant minutes that I have left, (laughs) and I want to point out another miracle in this morning's text. This is a miracle that many of us overlook as irrelevant. This is a miracle that many of us take for granted. And this is a miracle that for generations before us have disenchanted due to familiarity or even quotidian contempt. I'm referring to where the angel delivered the message. For God dispatched this angel to a city in Galilee known as Nazareth. Oh, Nazareth, most of us have become immune to the political and theological implications of the name Nazareth. We identify the location with the cultural power and the popularity of Jesus, particularly during the Christmas Advent season. But Nazareth, my friends, was far from a desirable zip code. Nazareth was an area of entrenched peasant poverty. Nazareth was an area of Palestinian disrepute. Nazarites were the laborers on the bottom rung of a principally two-rung ladderer in the ancient world. The elites in Jerusalem, they recognized Nazarites by their inferior Aramaic. The upper echelons of Judean society malign Nazarites for their presumed lax morality and people who came from Nazareth would have been considered uncouth and uncultured by those of us who tend to wear our affectations proudly and flaunt our self-importance. Nazareth. Roman authorities... Roman authorities considered young people from this region as hotheads and thugs. Roman officials often labeled the area as a hotbed of bandits. Another word for political insurgents that those in power often labeled as terrorists. This is why whenever young people from Nazareth left the area, the agents of empire marked their bodies as dangerous and deviant. They didn't need probable cause to stop and frisk them nor did the officials need any evidence to corroborate their bigoted assumptions. Residents of Nazareth were not people with problems, a privilege afforded to the well-placed among us. The people of Nazareth were a problem people, a slur reserved for those who we wish to control and contain. My friends, we can even regard the label Jesus of Nazareth as politically and ethnically loaded. It's akin to somebody saying Jim the redneck, James from the ghetto, or Jane from the backwoods. Somebody walk with me. Recall in the first chapter of John's gospel, Philip says to Nathaniel, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Anybody remember how Nathaniel responded? He asked the most supercilious and condescending of questions. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Oh, recall when Jesus is on a revival tour of Galilee and returns to his hometown. Even the residents of Nazareth became trapped in the quicksand of their own low self-conception. Despite Jesus' intellectual acumen and his spiritual sophistication, his fellow Nazarites mocked him. Isn't that the carpenter's son? Wasn't he born of Mary? Mary? come on that can't be the son of God we know his family James Simon and Judas those are his brothers his sisters they all went to school with us though you ain't heard this from me I heard Joseph ain't even that boy's father She was just one of the many young, you know how those Nazarite girls are, they get defiled by those Roman soldiers. Joseph just married her to cover that up. Nazareth. So despite the social connotations of the community and despite the social vices associated with the village, God chose this unexpected place. God picked this unlikely peasant girl. God chose this family and this region and this village. This, my friends, is a miracle. And from this miracle, you and I can learn something about the attributes of our God. For when God decided to step through the porthole from eternity into time, There were so many prestigious places that God could have selected in the ancient world. Oh, God could have selected Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth with its abundant water supply and centrality of location. Oh, but no. God selected a peasant village off the beaten path, Nazareth. God could have selected the cities of Rome or Athens, the capital cities of Italy and Greece respectively. Their very names signify power and intellect. But God, God selected an unwed teen mother from the backside of town to transform the spiritual composition of the planet. And God could have even chose Egypt cradle of all civilization in North Africa. But rather than floating down the mighty Nile River, God opted to walk through the impoverished streets of Nazareth in the person of an itinerant Palestinian Jew of the artisan rank. I can imagine, my friends, the look of anxiety on Mary and Joseph's faces. Can't you hear Mary's fearful, trembling voice? What you're telling me is impossible. Who's going to believe that I'm pregnant by God? Joseph's family could press charges under Mosaic law and have me stoned to death. And if that isn't enough, who's going to believe that this Messiah comes from me, from this family, from this village? Impossible. But note how the angel Gabriel comforts her in Luke's account of the story. The angel Gabriel just looks at her and says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. My friends, this is the good news of Advent for all of us today. Many of us, like Mary, we are pregnant with possibility. For one reason or another, however, we might just be aborting a more productive future with the defeatist language of the impossible, the unlikely, or the unexpected. For some of us, it might be a false sense of insecurity. We think too low of ourselves. I can never achieve that. I can never do that. God would never use me. I could never be that. For others of us, it might be a false sense of security. We think too highly of ourselves. I would never do that. That would never be me. And as a result we may be making peace with mediocrity and a debilitating deal with the status quo, all in the name of considering what we think is unlikely. All in the name of what we've been conditioned to expect or not to expect. But with God. That's the message of this Advent season. That's the message of Christmas every year with God. And more importantly, with hope, faith, and love, the seemingly impossible is always a possibility. Some of us sitting here today in this congregation, some of our lives are testaments to this fact. What good was supposed to come out of your hometown? what good was supposed to come from your family lineage others may not know but you know the truth about your people (laughs) don't get me wrong I get it I get it I feel the pressure every day I've spent the last decade on the campus of Harvard University I know how there's a pressure sometimes to perform We've made it professionally. We've climbed the ladder socially. So we feel the need to pretend that we came out the womb quoting the Pythagorean theorem. God dispatched an angel to your parents and declared the child that you carry in your womb will attend the finest universities and hobnob with the most privileged in society. But there's others. There's others who may be the first in your generation to receive a formal education. You're the first to ever leave home or leave the state. You're the first person in your family to ever purchase their own home, to experience events and to meet people that your parents and your grandparents would have never fathomed. The very things that preceding generations thought were unlikely or unexpected, God has moved in your life. This is why we ought to thank God for loving communities that supported us, nurtured us, and cared for us. These are all the people that God used to help us reach goals that they could not even imagine for themselves. They made the impossible possible for us. And it's for this reason, my friends, like Mary and Joseph, you and I have a charge this morning. Let's celebrate the coming of Christ by striving toward the unlikely. Let's leave here attempting the unthinkable, imagining the inconceivable, accomplishing the infeasible, traversing the impassable, opening up the inaccessible, and overcoming the insurmountable. For we serve a God that can show up in the most unlikely of places and a God who will use the most unlikely of people. Thank God. And we serve a God who can transform the most improbable condition. This is the question, or these are the questions that God asks us to think about this Advent. What do you consider unlikely? What's unexpected? But are we willing to believe then are we ready to make it so
0: praise be to God